This is No Bull from Lawfare. Hearings, briefings, and speeches with the fat stripped out. Today on Lawfare No Bull, Tony Blinken faces the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I listened to it all so you don't have to. I stripped out all the speechifying, the duplication, the grandstanding, and left you only the questions and the answers. It's Tony Blinken versus the committee with no bull. Let me ask you this. There have been numerous press reports over the past week about a new or refined process for the State Department to lead efforts in coordination with the Department of Defense to work with outside groups to evacuate American citizens and Afghan allies left behind in Afghanistan. Can you tell us exactly what these new U.S. government-led efforts are, how coordination with outside groups and individuals being handled by who, what is the nature of the state DOD cooperation? Give us a sense of that. Sure. Uh, we have, uh, within the department, led by our former ambassador to Afghanistan, John Bass, uh, who went back to Kabul uh, to the airport to help lead the evacuation efforts. Uh, he is leading an effort to uh, manage, coordinate all of the ongoing efforts to bring people who wish to leave Afghanistan out. Uh, and that includes, among other things, a coordination with the many outside groups, uh, as well as uh, members of Congress, who are working uh, themselves uh, heroically to help uh, in this effort. Um, I met myself with about 75 veterans organizations uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, given the extraordinary efforts that uh, veterans, either individually or as groups, are doing uh, to help. And we want to make sure that we are as coordinated as we possibly can be uh, on these efforts to make sure that we know um, who is doing what, what assistance we can provide, uh, and uh, to make sure that uh, we're working together uh, going forward. Uh, we have many other people working on this, uh, on this task force, uh, some dedicated to uh, American citizens, uh, others focused on SIVs and other uh, Afghans mm -hmm. at risk, others focused on coordinating with uh, different groups, including members of Congress. Let me give you one uh, my final minute. I'd like to give you an opportunity to set the record straight on one point. Uh, several commentators have suggested that had the department moved forward with the Crisis Contingency and Response Bureau proposed by the Trump administration as it was walking out the door, it would have been able to respond better to the Afghan situation. But it's my understanding that that bureau had not been stood up yet when you decided to curtail the proposal, nor as proposed, did it actually add any additional resources or capabilities to those that state already had. It was a bureaucratic movement, not creating or getting rid of actual capabilities, just a new organizational chart. And in that bureaucratic reshuffling, potentially creating damage to the department's operations, not solving them. Is that a fair statement? Uh, that is a fair statement, Mr. Chairman. Okay. If it's not the CCR, then what is the answer? Well, here again, to your, uh, to your point, uh, with regard to, uh, to the CCR, uh, whether it became a, a bureau or not, uh, there was no change in the assets that we already had at hand uh, to work uh, on these efforts. Uh, and uh, the focus of uh, this group, either in its existing organizational structure or had it become a bureau, which, uh, among other things, it didn't because there were congressional holds from across, uh, across the aisle uh, on this effort. The previous administration nonetheless uh, went through and uh, tried to move it forward. We decided that we needed to review it. We did the review, uh, and as you described very, uh, very accurately, 
we found that uh, this would add no assets to what we already had at hand. It would simply create a different bureaucratic uh, structure. Somebody need, we need, the American people want to know who's responsible for this. So let's start with this. Who is responsible? Who made the decisions on this? Was it the President of the United States? Ultimately, uh, the president makes the decisions. That's correct. Did he in this case? As, as in every case, ultimately decisions that can only be decided by the president are decided by the president. Well, in, now, of course, uh, to, be, to be specific, uh, uh, Senator, there are hundreds, thousands of decisions uh, every single day uh, that go into a, a situation as complex as this one. The big strategic decisions, those are decided by the, the, by the president. The tactical, operational decisions are made by, uh, by different agencies, agency heads, uh, agency officials. Well, I'm more interested in, in the top decision-making. Look, we've all seen this. We saw it as, as recently as yesterday. Somebody in the White House has authority to press the button and stop the president, cut off the president's uh, uh, speaking ability and sound. Who is that person? I think anyone who knows the president, uh, including members of this uh, committee, knows that uh, he speaks very clearly and very uh, deliberately uh, for himself. Uh, no one else does. Well, are you, are you saying that there is no one in the White House that can cut him off? Because yesterday that happened, and it's happened a number of times before that. It's been widely reported that somebody has the ability to push the button and, and cut off his sound and stop him from speaking. Who is that person? <laughs> there is... There is no such person, again, uh, the president uh, speaks for himself, uh, makes all of the strategic decisions, uh, informed by the best advice that he can get from the, uh, the people around him. So are you unaware that this is actually happening? Because it happened yesterday at the uh, interagency fire center. Uh, it was widely reported, the media's reported on it, and it's not the first time it's happened, it's happened several times. Are you telling this, are you telling this committee that this does not happen, that there's no one in the White House who pushes the button and, and cuts him off in mid-sentence? That's correct. So this didn't happen yesterday, nor on the other occasions where the media showed the American people that his sentence was cut off in mid-sentence. Yeah. Are you saying that didn't happen? Senator, I'm, I really don't know what you're, uh, what you're referring to. All I can tell you is, uh, having uh, worked with the president uh, for now uh, 20 years, both here uh, on this committee uh, and uh, in, uh, over the last nine months at the White House, the president very much speaks for himself. Well, let's take a different attack. He does speak for himself, but what happens when somebody doesn't want him speaking? You're, you're telling us you don't know anything about this, that, they, that somebody cuts him off in mid-sentence. Is that what you're trying to tell this committee? Because everybody here has seen it. Senator, I'm telling you, based on my own experience uh, with the president over the last 20 years, <laughs> anyone who tried to stop him from saying what he wanted to say, speaking his mind, uh, would probably not be long for their, for their job. <clears throat> Let's turn to the dissent cable that you received in uh, July. Are, are you willing to give a copy of this dissent cable that you got from two dozen diplomats regarding the imminent uh, uh, catastrophic collapse in uh, Afghanistan? Are you willing to give a copy of that to this committee? Uh, 
Senator, this, this dissent channel is something that I place tremendous value uh, and importance on. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way um, for people in the State Department to speak the truth as they see it uh, to power. Uh, and these uh, cables, I've read every single one of the, of the dissent channel cables that we've gotten during this administration. I've responded uh, to every single one. I factored what I read and heard into, um, uh, into my thinking uh, and, to, and into my actions. But the legitimacy of the, of the channel, the ability for people to be able to, uh, with confidence, uh, share their thoughts, uh, share their views, even when they run counter uh, to what uh, their, uh, their seniors uh, have said or the policies being prescribed. Uh, it's vitally important that we protect that channel, protect its integrity, uh, and it is designed by its very regulations uh, only to be shared with senior officials uh, in the department. And what I don't want to see uh, is some kind of chilling effect going forward uh, that says to those who would think of writing a, a cable in the future that uh, this, uh, this will uh, you know, get out widely, be, uh, be distributed uh, in ways that, um, uh, that, would have that, uh, that would have that chilling effect. Do you admit that you received a dissent cable in July signed by two dozen diplomats that warned about the imminent colla uh, catastrophic collapse that was coming in Afghanistan? Senator, I certainly uh, received this, uh, the cable in, uh, in mid-July. I read it. I responded to it. I factored uh, its uh, contents into my, my thinking. And what the, uh, the cable said broadly uh, is, was two things. It did not uh, suggest that the government and security forces were going to collapse prior to our departure. It did express real concerns about the durability of that government and force after our departure, and it focused on the efforts that we were making particularly on the, on the SIV front, uh, to try to expedite moving them out. And in fact, a number of the recommendations, the very good recommendations it made, were already uh, in train. Others were not. But one of the ones that was in train was the establishment of Operation Allies Refuge. We received the cable on July 13th. That operation was actually put in, uh, into force on July 14th. It had already been planned for some time. And this was an effort to expedite the um, identification and relocation of SIVs, actually putting them on planes, which, as you know, is not part of, uh, of the program, actually relocating them uh, and working to establish transit sites so that we could put them there while we finished processing them. Well, you see, that's the problem with us not having access to that cable. You're telling us that, but we have uh, been told by others that it was, it was significantly different than what you're saying. Uh, also, we really would like to see the response to that because I think history is going to be uh, interested in that particular cable and uh, your response to it. Um, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Blinken, thank you so much for being with us today. And, and thank you during the Afghan evacuations for almost the daily briefings you had for all members of the United States Senate and keeping us totally informed as to the events unfolding. I contrast that to what happened during the Trump years where we were not kept informed at all about the negotiations between the Trump administration and the Taliban, that we had no briefings or information at all in regards to the summit meetings between the United States and North Korea, or the United States and Russia, where our committee could not conduct the oversight that is so important, as you have pointed out, uh, working with the executive branch 
and a check and balance for the unity of our country. So I thank you very much uh, for the way that you have kept us engaged and informed as decisions have been made. As you pointed out, the Biden administration was dealt a, a very difficult hand on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We all recognized we needed to withdraw. The options were extremely limited. The mistakes made by previous administrations, we've talked about it, but I think we need to understand that many of us did not support the 2002 campaign to go into Iraq. And one of those reasons was that we wanted to complete the mission in Afghanistan when we had a chance to do it when the Taliban was diminished uh, after our military came in after the attack on our country. But instead, we went into Iraq, which was not engaged in the 9-11 uh, activities, and we never finished Afghanistan, a mistake made by the Bush administration. And we've already talked about the Trump administration and setting a deadline and releasing prisoners and uh, moving forward with the reduction of troops uh, when there was really very little options that the administration had. It doesn't negate the information that was made available uh, to you about the strength of the Afghan security forces and the Ghani administration's will to stick with it in Afghanistan. And I think many of us are interested in knowing how intelligence got that so wrong. And the contingency plans are ones that we really do want to review because it seems to us there had to be better ways to secure passage into the airport than what ultimately happened. But considering the hand that you were dealt, considering the crisis that developed, evacuating 124,000 was a miraculous task. So we congratulate all that were involved in the evacuation of so many people under such a short period of time under such difficult circumstances. I want to get to where we are today. During this process, the State Department was very open to all members of Congress, Democrats, Republicans, as we filtered information into you about vulnerable people in an effort to get them out of Afghanistan. Today, our offices are still being deluged by requests to help people that are in Afghanistan. NGOs are working very aggressively. Can you share with us the process that you're using in order to filter information about Americans that are still in Afghanistan who want to leave, those that apply for SIV status, and those Afghans that are at risk, how do we transmit that information and what process is in place so that we can try to get these people out of Afghanistan? Yes, thank you, Senator. Um, as I noted, we've established uh, a task force focused entirely on relocation to help those who wish to leave Afghanistan, whether they're the, uh, any remaining American citizens, uh, whether it's uh, SIV applicants, uh, whether it's Afghans at risk, whether it's the nationals of, uh, of partner countries, uh, get out. And that involves a number of things. It involves for the American citizens, uh, case management teams, 500 individuals whose task is to be in constant contact with any remaining American citizens who wish to leave, and that's what they're doing. Uh, it also includes, together with our Legislative Affairs Office, being in uh, constant contact uh, with you, uh, as well as with uh, outside groups who have identified and are trying to help uh, people who seek to leave. Um, this uh, here is uh, the sum total of cases brought to us by members of this committee, just this committee, uh, that all of you, or many of you, have been working. And we are 
deeply grateful uh, for those efforts, for this information. It ensures that uh, when you send us the information, uh, we put it into uh, our database if it's not already there. We make sure that we're able to track it. We make sure we're able to coordinate uh, with you. Uh, and I recognize that especially in the, uh, in the early going, uh, during the evacuation itself, uh, some of the, uh, the, the feedback was lacking. We were trying to do all of this in real time, making sure that we took in the information that, that you were providing and, and acting on it. And in, in some cases, we didn't get back to people uh, to say, here's what we've done. Uh, and we've been working to make sure that we, we get back to everyone. I think we had 26,000 inquiries uh, we've, from Congress. Uh, we've responded to uh, 21 or 22,000 of them. Uh, so we, we still have the categories of reporters that work for us yeah. that are still in Afghanistan. We have uh, uh, women uh, officials in, that were officials in Afghanistan that are at risk. We have uh, NGOs that right. worked with us in Afghanistan. They're employees that are at risk. That's so correct. you're saying we still have an opportunity to work with you to get that information to the sources that you're using to try to arrange for their exit from Afghanistan. Yes, absolutely, and we very much invite that, and we want to make sure that we have as best uh, possible uh, a unified, uh, coordinated list so that uh, we know what, uh, what everyone is working on, and we can track, uh, and, uh, and we can help, or we can take on, depending on the... And, on the and can I get if the, your best guess on the numbers? At one point, when we first started, we thought there might be somewhere around a little less than 100,000 of U.S. citizens, SIVs, and Afghans at risk that wanted to leave. Obviously, that number was low. We've already uh, uh, evacuated over 124,000. Do we know how many U.S. citizens are in Afghanistan that want to exit today? How many are in SIV status that want to exit? And how many Afghans at risk we want to help? Uh, on, uh, on the American citizens who wish to leave, uh, the number is about 100. And it's very hard to give a um, real-time uh, number at any given moment because it's very fluid, by which I mean this. Um, some uh, people, were, and we're in direct contact uh, with, with this group, some, for very understandable reasons, are changing, uh, changing their mind uh, from, from day to day about whether or not uh, they want to leave. Uh, others continue, uh, even now, to uh, raise their hands and say, uh, I'm an American citizen in Afghanistan, someone who had not identified themselves before. And again, I think as all of you know very, very well, um, we do not uh, require as a country uh, our citizens to register or identify themselves to uh, our embassies in any country in the world when they travel there or if they reside there. And, and do you uh, have the numbers choice. for SIV so, and for... So the, so the, uh, the SIV numbers, that we're, we're tabulating right now because we're trying to account for everyone who has come in. Some people remain uh, in transit countries. Uh, other people uh, are now in the United States. Uh, we're putting all of those uh, numbers together to determine uh, the, the, over, the, the overwhelming majority of Afghans who have come out of Afghanistan thanks to our evacuation efforts are in one way or another Afghans at risk. Some will be SIV applicants. Others will be P1 or P2 uh, applicants. Others will be in none of those categories, but Afghans at risk. We're breaking down uh, all of those numbers, and we should have uh, a breakdown for you in the next couple of weeks. So I think this leaves us in a terrible situation, but I go back to the initial point. I don't know how it's possible. If, if in fact, the people in charge of our foreign policy did not see all of these factors and conclude that there was a very real possibility of a re very rapid uh, collapse, 
then we've got the wrong people making military and, and diplomacy decisions in our government. Senator, um, I'm happy to respond briefly in, uh, in, in the time that we have. Um, as you know uh, from your own uh, expertise and leadership uh, on these matters, there are constant uh, assessments being done, and in this particular case, assessments being done of the uh, resilience uh, of uh, Afghan security forces, of the Afghan government, uh, and different scenarios uh, established uh, from worst case to best case to, to everything in between. And ultimately, the preponderance uh, of, the, uh, of the intelligence and, and assessments land uh, someplace. And there are, go there are always going to be voices, and cr critically important that we listen to all of them, uh, who may be talking about exclusively uh, the worst case, some best case, some in between. Uh, here's what I can say uh, in this setting, and we can take this up as well in, uh, in other settings. Back in February, uh, the assessment of the, the overall assessment of the, uh, of the community was that after a complete U.S. military withdrawal, that could potentially, in the worst case scenario, lead to the Taliban capturing Kabul within a year or two. Uh, so that's back in, in February, and that was more or less where things stood uh, in the winter and into the spring. By July, and you're exactly right, that the situation was uh, deteriorating as the Taliban continued uh, to uh, make progress on the ground uh, throughout the summer. In July, uh, the IC indicated that it was more likely than not that the Taliban would take over by the end of the year, uh, the end of this year. Um, that said, uh, we, the intelligence community, did not say that the countrywide collapse of all meaningful resistance would be likely to occur in a matter of days. And, uh, and you referenced uh, Chairman Milley, as I did uh, earlier, Nothing that, that he saw, uh, that I saw, that we saw suggested that this government and uh, security force would collapse in a matter of 11 days. And you're right that I think we need to look back at, at all of this uh, because, uh, to your point, we collectively, over 20 years, invested extraordinary amounts in those security forces and in that government. Hundreds of billions of dollars, equipment, training, advice, support. Uh, and Based on that, uh, as well as based on what we were looking at real time, again, uh, we did not see uh, this uh, collapse in a matter of, uh, of 11 days. But the, I think it is important that we go back and look at all of this. The time has expired. Now, Mr. Secretary, as you know, I, I was one of those who was opposed to our withdrawing from Afghanistan. I'm not going to revisit that, but a lot of my concerns were around the rights of women and girls if Afghanistan fell into the hands of the Taliban. So I, I, I want to ask you now, and you've been uh, very specific on briefing calls that you share the concern, um, and I recognize that you believe it's a priority for this administration to do what you can to protect the rights of women and girls. So can you talk specifically about what steps the department is taking to provide for the safety of women and girls and how we're trying to rally the international community behind that effort? Yes, thank you, Senator. Um, and let me just start by thanking you uh, personally for your leadership uh, for a long time now on these issues, both on uh, the SIVs, uh, and the work that we've actually been able to do to try to improve the program, but more work needs to be done, uh, as well, of course, as on, uh, on, on women and girls. Um, 
from you know, advancing uh, women, peace, and security uh, in that agenda to uh, ensuring that uh, there's an equal playing field for women and girls, um, uh, you've made a huge difference. And I have to say, over the last 20 years, uh, we have made a difference uh, collectively uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and possibly the biggest difference we made was for women and girls. Access to education, uh, access to health care, access to work, um, and opportunity. Uh, all of that um, was as a result of uh, many of the efforts that, uh, that we made uh, and that this Congress uh, made and, uh, and supported, including with very, very significant assistance. This is, th this is hard. Uh, I, I, I was in Kabul uh, after the President announced his decision. I met with um, women leaders from uh, the then uh, Parliament, uh, NGOs, a lawyer, human rights defenders, listened and heard from them about their concerns about the future. Just the past um, uh, couple of weeks when I was out in, in Doha and then in Ramstein, I talked to um, uh, young women and, and girls who we'd evacuated and heard from them both of their gratitude for having been uh, evacuated, but also their deep concerns, more than deep concerns, about the, the future for the uh, women and girls who remain in Afghanistan. So, with that very much in mind, um, we have uh, done a few things, and this is where we really want to work closely with you and with, 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 with every member. One, we've worked to rally the, the international community to set very clear expectations of the uh, Taliban uh, going forward, to include the expectation that it will uphold the basic rights of women uh, and girls as well as uh, minorities. And that's uh, visible in the statement that more than 100 countries have signed at our initiative. It's also in a UN Security Council resolution that we initiated and got passed. And I know people say, oh, it's a, it's a, a, a statement or a Security Council resolution, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Well, in the case of the Security Council resolution, just to cite one example, uh, there are significant sanctions that from the United Nations on the Taliban. Uh, there are travel restrictions on the Taliban. And the idea that if the Taliban is in violation of the Security Council resolution that we established, it will get any relief just on that alone, the UN sanctions uh, or travel restrictions, um, I think that's uh, pretty clear that, that that won't happen. That's just one point uh, of leverage. We've been working to make sure that the international community speaks with one voice and acts together, including on this. That, that's one. Second, uh, we want to make sure that assistance continues to flow. Uh, humanitarian assistance, including assistance that's directed at the special needs of women and girls. We're doing that consistent with our sanctions, uh, and we're able to do that by working through NGOs uh, and the UN agencies. Now, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this, uh, because we know that while the Taliban uh, seeks and will probably support and protect basic humanitarian assistance through these agencies, like uh, for food uh, and medicine, uh, it may be a different story when it comes to things that are directed uh, specifically at women and girls. So we're going to be very focused uh, on that and trying to make sure that that assistance can uh, go through, that it's monitored uh, effectively, uh, including by the agencies uh, doing it. And I spent some time talking with the head of the uh, uh, United Nations effort on this in terms of having a clear monitoring mechanism uh, for this uh, and to carry that forward. Next, um, we will soon appoint at my direction a senior official responsible 
for focusing and marshalling all of our efforts on support for women, girls, uh, and minorities in Afghanistan. I think it's very important that we have a focal point in the U.S. government, at the State Department, whose responsibility is to carry forward this agenda, working closely with you uh, in, the, uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, thank you very much. I'm out of time, but can you share with us who that official is as soon as they're appointed? Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Afghans to the United States. So let me just start with a question about um, visa status. Uh, Senator Sullivan and I wrote a bipartisan letter in mid-August uh, urging expanded el eligibility for the SIV program. Um, I'm interested in how you're working to expand eligibility under the existing visa programs to include family members and to support those the U.S. government um, supported and worked alongside but who were not direct employees. I want to start, if I could, Mr. Secretary, by asking you just yes or no questions about three groups that other senators have mentioned. Sure. There's about 550 um, employees and family members from Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, who were not evacuated. Is the department prioritizing their evacuation? Yes. And the department committed to evacuating our partners from NED, the National Endowment of Democracy, NDI, IRI. Are those also being prioritized? Yes, they are. And our partners from the American University of Afghanistan as well? Yes. And so if you would take the four minutes we've got left and explore with me, how do we ensure safe passage across land uh, borders, whether into Tajikistan or Pakistan, safe and regular flights out of um, Afghanistan, whether from Mazari Sharif or Kabul, and how do we get documents into the hands of those who don't have identity documents, either because they were destroyed in our embassy or they destroyed them themselves out of fear of the Taliban? And how do we make sure that we're providing the financial support needed um, for the whole group of refugees who, after thorough vetting, ultimately reached the United States? Yeah, thank you very much, Senator. Those are all very important questions, and let me try to respond briefly uh, to them, and we can uh, take on the details uh, after the session if, uh, if need be. Uh, first, uh, we, we needed and we have established a clear expectation um, from the, uh, the Taliban about uh, allowing people to continue uh, to leave the country, to include uh, American citizens, uh, green card holders, um, Afghans who, have, uh, who, are, who are properly documented with a visa, uh, including specifically those who worked uh, in some capacity uh, for the United States. Um, and not only do we have that uh, understanding in public statements by uh, the Taliban, of course, it's built into everything we've done with a large coalition of countries in terms of setting an expectation and making very clear that uh, the failure to fulfill that expectation uh, will have significant consequences, which we can get into. Second, very important to actually make sure that there are um, ways to travel freely from the country. Uh, we made an intensive effort before we left uh, to um, understand and share uh, with Qatar and Turkey, the countries that stepped up to, to do this, what was necessary to make sure that the airport in Kabul could continue to function and ultimately not uh, have charter flights and then commercial flights going in under international civil aviation organization standards. We did intensive work. We brought the American contact contractors back in the midst of the evacuation uh, who had been running the airport to work that, we handed off a very detailed plan, which is now being implemented. Third, uh, the, the land crossings. Uh, we've worked with Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan uh, on this to make sure that as we uh, moved people out of Afghanistan, they would facilitate uh, their crossing into their countries. We would have consular officials 
uh, surged in the necessary places to handle people coming out uh, in that fashion. Uh, and now, to your very important point about documentation, and this is something that maybe we can take uh, offline, uh, we are working on a, um, a mechanism and a means by which, and there are multiple ways of doing this, to make sure that people who don't have the necessary document, for example, a visa from us, a physical visa, uh, to, uh, to get that to them. Um, and I'd prefer to go into more detail on that in, a, uh, in another setting. Understood. If I might, just as a, as a closing question, uh, you were asked at the outset, sort of what are the factors we weigh as we decide the future of our relationship uh, with the Taliban? Um, and we're in this difficult situation. Many of us recognize the Taliban is a terrorist organization that's done horrific things within Afghanistan in the past, yet we need to have some working relationship with them to secure the safe passage out of thousands of people uh, who we still care deeply about, a number of American citizens with Delaware ties who I've been in contact with didn't leave because their families were still yeah. in Afghanistan. Um, and there are clear measures um, that they should be expected to meet that you laid out in your opening statement. What do you think will be the most important aspects of our leverage to ensure the Taliban uh, perform in ways that we would accept? And what do you think will be the turning point at which we'll make decisions with our allies um, to take sharper and harsher measures against the, the Taliban? So simply put, the, the nature of the relationship that the, the, the Taliban uh, would have with us or most other countries around the world will depend entirely on its conduct and actions, specifically with regard uh, to freedom of travel, uh, as well as to making good uh, on its uh, counterterrorism commitments, uh, upholding basic rights of the Afghan people, uh, not engaging in reprisals, et cetera. These are the things that not only we, but countries around the world are looking at. And there is, I think, uh, significant uh, leverage that we and other countries hold uh, when it comes to things that uh, the Taliban says it wants, uh, but won't get if it does not uh, act in a way uh, that meets these, uh, these expectations. For example, we talked a little bit before about the existing UN sanctions uh, on the Taliban. Uh, these are significant, uh, as well as travel restrictions. Uh, there's now a new, a new Security Council resolution that we initiated setting out the expectations for what the Taliban has to do. If it's not, if it's in violation of that resolution, it's hard to see any of these UN sanctions being um, lifted, uh, travel restrictions being lifted, and indeed additional sanctions could well be imposed. Similarly, uh, the foreign reserves of Afghanistan are almost exclusively uh, in, um, in banks here in the uh, United States, including the, the Federal Reserve, uh, other banks, about uh, $9 billion. All of that has been frozen. Uh, there are significant uh, resources as well that are in the international financial institutions that Afghanistan normally would have access to. Those, too, have been frozen. Over the last 20 years or so, uh, the international community has provided about 75 percent of the Afghan government's annual operating budget. That, too, has been frozen. So among uh, many things uh, that the Taliban says it seeks, both basic legitimacy and basic support, uh, the United States, the international community, uh, has a, a hand on a lot of that, uh, much of that, most of that. Uh, and so we'll have to see uh, going forward uh, what um, conclusions the Taliban draws from that and what, uh, what its conduct will be matching these basic expectations that we've set. Thanks. Thanks. Have you, Mr. Secretary, has, has the Taliban abandoned their sympathy and coll collaboration with groups like al-Qaeda and the Haqqani Network? Um, do, do they continue to have the same aim, and are, are, they, uh, are they of like spirit? 
or, uh, or, or, or has, that, uh, uh, has that relationship been, been severed? Uh, the relationship is, has not been severed, uh, and it's a very open question as to whether um, their views uh, and the uh, relationship has changed in any kind of definitive way. I think it's fair to say two things. Uh, one, um, whatever the Taliban's views uh, on al-Qaeda, uh, they do know that the last time they harbored al-Qaeda and it engaged in an outwardly directed attack, an attack on our homeland, uh, certain things followed, which I believe it would have an interest in not seeing repeated. So whatever their views on al-Qaeda, uh, there is a strong disincentive built in to allow it to engage in outwardly directed attacks, which uh, the assessment of the intelligence community is they're not currently capable of doing. ISIS-K, uh, the other main group, that's a different thing, as you know, because uh, the Taliban and ISIS-K are sworn enemies. And in fact, over the last five or six years, since the emergence of ISIS-K, uh, the fight has actually been between the Taliban and ISIS-K, with the Taliban taking most of the territory that ISIS-K sought to hold on to in Afghanistan. The question there, I think, is less whether they have the will uh, to uh, deal with ISIS-K and more whether they have the capacity. Given that, that response, uh, I know that, uh, that uh, previously the position of the administration and the State Department was that the 2001 AUMF no longer played a, a, a role of significance. Uh, but given the developments in Afghanistan and the uh, Taliban's ongoing collaboration with and sympathy with al-Qaeda uh, and the Haqqani network uh, and like-minded groups, uh, is it not appropriate for the State Department to revisit your recommendation that we abandon the 2001 AUMF? I think, Senator, we need to look to make sure that we have all the authorities that we would need for any uh, potential con contingency, including the reemergence as a threat uh, of al-Qaeda or the further emergence of ISIS-K as an outwardly uh, directed threat. If, uh, if we don't have uh, those authorities, we, sh we should get them, whether that means um, relooking at those authorizations or writing new ones, which I think would be uh, the most appropriate thing to do if necessary. Uh, we need to look at that. I, I appreciate your willingness to, uh, to change your point of view, in, in part because the conditions that have developed uh, in the most recent weeks, um, nothing wrong with conditions uh, leading to a change in perspective. Uh, I, I, for one, uh, thought some years ago that we should with, withdraw from, uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, the conditions I saw in the ensuing years convinced me that I was wrong. Uh, and I, uh, like Senator Shaheen, uh, was one of those that felt that, that President Trump was wrong to enter into an agreement to withdraw. I thought President Biden was wrong to enter into an agreement or to continue with that agreement to withdraw. Um, and, and of course, I was appalled by the disastrous withdrawal process itself. Um, for us today, however, I guess I, I'd like to focus more on the, uh, the moral stain of leaving people behind. Um, and, uh, and, and understand what we can do to make sure that we are not leaving uh, people behind. I understand we're down to a small number of Americans. It's hard to know exactly how many are left behind. But in terms of legal permanent residents, is your priority just as high to get them out as it is to get out citizens? Or is there a different level of commitment for a legal permanent residence uh, return to the United States relative to a citizen? Um, Senator, our number one priority is American citizens. And that has, I think, long, uh, long been the case. Uh, in this uh, situation in Afghanistan, in this emergency evacuation uh, in Afghanistan, uh, we did everything we could as well to make sure that uh, legal permanent residents, green card holders, would also identify themselves to us. We don't like with American citizens. 
we don't know at any given time uh, how many there are in any given country around can, the world, can, and to make available resources to help them. But our number one priority is any remaining American citizens who wish to leave. I, I didn't realize there's a secondary level of priority then for a legal permanent resident. Uh, if that's the case, I, I, how many of them approximately, so we don't know the exact number, but, but how many legal permanent residents are, are we uh, convinced are still in Afghanistan? We don't, we don't have an exact number, but it's in the I, But a, a round in, number? In the thousands. Pardon? In the thousands. In the thousands. Uh, likewise, in terms of SIV holders or SIV applicants uh, or, or people who've worked with us that have been our, our partners uh, through the years, how many of them approximately are still in Afghanistan that want to come to the United States? So this is what we're doing a, uh, an accounting of right now based on, on two things, based on the, the, the pipeline of applicants as it existed uh, before the evacuation. Uh, and then looking at uh, those who uh, we were able to evacuate. We don't have those numbers yet because as we've moved to evacuate people, a number of them are still at transit points around the world. Others, uh, as But you it would be us. tens of thousands? So realistically, uh, yeah. two things. Um, one, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but of the, uh, of the applicants uh, in the program, the, uh, and as I said, we inherited about 18,000, about half of those uh, and this remains more or less the case now, are at a point where it's before the chief of mission has given his or her approval that they are, in fact, eligible for the program. I so we focused on the... I, 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 I was looking for a number, and I guess the question I was leading to was this, which is given the fact that the SIV process was so slow and not undertaken during the Trump years in a significant way, you sped it up, that's great, although no, you knew that, that there was no way you were going to get all these people out in time. Let me put a final uh, point on, a, on, a rap, on a, uh, given, given the rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces. And, 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 and you said yesterday that you inherited a, a, a date, uh, but in fact, you didn't inherit the date. Uh, the date was May 1st, and you pushed it to August 31st. Why, why didn't you push it much later so that we would have been able to process the SIV uh, applicants as well as those who had worked with us that had not yet applied? I, I don't understand why, why a date was actually not inherited, and a date was not selected that would be sufficient to actually remove people from the nation in a way that would be in keeping with our moral commitment to honor our citizens, our green card holders, as well as those who've worked with us over the years. Uh, two things, if I may. First, the, uh, the, we, we, we took some risk uh, in terms of what the Taliban would do or not do after May 1st in pushing uh, beyond May 1st, and we, of course, uh, work this very hard because well, it's, the, a, no, it's a risk with other people we took. It's a risk. The, the risk was on people we care for. Yeah, just to be, be clear, if I, let me, if I could, um, the military uh, told us that in order to um, do its retrograde, its drawdown from Afghanistan in a, in a safe and orderly way, it needed three to four months. That's why we pushed uh, to move beyond May 1st uh, and to get to the end of August, early September. Second, to your point, which is an important one and a good one, um, our expectation uh, was that beyond uh, August 31st, beyond the military drawdown, uh, the government, the security forces, were going to remain in control of, uh, of Kabul, uh, of the major cities. Our embassy uh, was fully planned to remain uh, up and running. Uh, we were leaving about 600 uh, military uh, behind to uh, make sure that we could secure the embassy. Uh, so that it could continue to operate. We had robust programming planned to include continuing to bring out uh, anyone who wished to leave, uh, notably, uh, notably SIVs. So that was very much the plan and the expectation. What was not, what we did not anticipate was that 
uh, 11-day collapse of the government and security forces. That's what changed everything. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Thank you. So, Mr. Secretary, if President Biden had chosen to breach the agreement that President Trump had signed with the Taliban, would the Taliban have restarted attacks against U.S. troops and bases? Yes. As you said in your opening testimony, by the time you administration took office, the Taliban was on the outskirts of several provincial capitals. If President Biden had chosen to breach the agreement between President Trump and the Taliban, would the Taliban have begun offensives on these urban centers? Yes. So if the Taliban had begun its siege on these cities and resumed attacks on U.S. troops, would 2,500 troops have been enough to keep the country from falling to the Taliban? No. Would double that number have been enough? Do we know how big our force would have had to have gotten? I think it was the assessment of uh, our uh, military leaders that, uh, not to put a number on it, but significant additional U.S. forces would have been required both to protect uh, ourselves and to um, uh, prevent the uh, onslaught from the Taliban against the provincial capitals and ultimately against Kabul. This wasn't a decision between leaving and the status quo. This was a decision between a significant commitment of new U.S. resources to the fight or the continuation of a withdrawal plan. That's correct. Okay, let's talk about the last month. So once the Afghan government and the military disintegrate all at once, it seems to me it was pretty predictable and understandable that there would be panic on the ground amongst the Afghan people. Um, so could it be expected that a few thousand U.S. troops and diplomats on the ground at the time, would have been able to prevent this panic? No. Much has been made about these dramatic and heartbreaking scenes at the airport. Were 2,500 or 5,000 troops enough to stop the Afghan people from rushing to the airport? It created this security nightmare for you, but was there any way for the limited number of personnel that were there to prevent um, individuals from rushing to the airport? No, they could. Uh control the airport, as we did. They could establish a basic uh, immediate perimeter around the airport, as we did, but they couldn't control what happened beyond that perimeter. And so let's talk about that perimeter. Others say, well, we should have controlled a bigger perimeter. We, we should have um, taken back over parts of Kabul to secure the passage of Americans and Afghans to the airport. I mean, let's say you had quadrupled the number of troops you had there. Let's say you had 10,000 troops there. Without the Afghan military or a functioning government, would that have been enough to retake Kabul to be able to secure the passage of everyone to the airport? Uh, I don't want to profess to be a military uh, expert, so I'd really defer to, uh, to my colleagues at the Pentagon on that. But I can say that, uh, I think safely say that it would have taken a substantial number of forces uh, to uh, try to retake uh, the city or uh, establish a much broader uh, perimeter. And of course, if that was ultimately opposed by the Taliban, uh, in a sense, it would have defeated the purpose because anyone outside that perimeter would not have been allowed uh, to get through it, to come to the airport, uh, among other things. Right. So once the Afghan military collapses, it disintegrates, um, we don't have enough troops to retake uh, Kabul. And we are in the position of uh, having to rely on the Taliban, or at least communicate with the Taliban, to make sure that we get individuals to the airport. That's correct. Okay. Finally, uh, Mr. Secretary, just quickly expand on your point about the message that it sends to China 
Um, this idea that the Chinese would love it if we stayed another 10 or 20 years, um, and why this isn't a sign of weakness. And in fact, this is an ability for you and the national security infrastructure to be able to reorient, reorient resources towards fights that we actually can win. Well, I think, I think Senator, you put it uh, very well uh, in, in, in my assessment uh, and the assessment of uh, many others. As I said, there's nothing uh, that uh, strategic competitors like, uh, like China, uh, like Russia, or uh, adversaries like Iran and North Korea would like better than for us to have re-upped the war, doubled down on it, uh, and remained bogged down in Afghanistan for another year, five years, 10 years, uh, 20 years, with all of that dedication of resources, uh, all of that uh, energy uh, and, and focus on that, as opposed to the challenges that uh, we, we have to face today. And uh, I might add, uh, this committee has done, a, I think, a very good job on, on trying to refocus us on notably uh, the competition from, uh, from China. So I think that would have been uh, doubling down uh, on, this, uh, on this war after 20 years, after nearly $2 trillion, uh, after uh, 2,461 uh, American lives lost, 20,000 uh, injuries, and not uh, to preserve the status quo that existed before May 1st. That would have been one thing. Um, but to be in a situation where the war with us was restarted, the Taliban attacking our forces, attacking our partners and allies, going on an offensive across the country to retake uh, the cities, um, that would have required a doubling down on a war. And the bottom line is this. Um, we were right to end the war. Uh, we were right not to send a third generation of Americans to Afghanistan to fight and die there. Uh, and I believe we were right in the extraordinary efforts that were made to make sure we could bring out as many people uh, as possible. And now we have an obligation uh, to make sure that we continue uh, to do that and, of course, to guard against the reemergence of any threats coming from Afghanistan. Thank Senator you, Chairman. So now what do we do? Let's look forward, as was suggested by Senator Coons, and I agree with that. You said that you don't believe it will be a platform for terrorism going forward, that the current government, the Taliban government, has said that, that they will fight back against terrorists. Do you believe that the Haqqani network, and particularly the new Secretary of the Interior, who is a wanted terrorist, based on your administration's assessment, do you believe that that is an indication that they are going to fight back against terrorists? The question, um, Senator, from uh, our perspective and, uh, and our partner's perspective is whether the Taliban will make good on commitments to ensure that Afghanistan is not used as a place for outwardly directed uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, and they've made commitments, but we're not relying on those commitments. Uh, we're going to make sure that we have in place the ability to detect any reemergence of that threat and to be able to do something about it if it does reemerge, something that we can talk about in, in more detail. In is a, the, in is the Haqqani setting. Network considered a terrorist group? Uh, it is. Is it true that the Interior Minister is a leader of the Haqqani Network? That is accurate. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. I want to turn to the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan. The World Food Program observed that half the children under five are acutely malnourished in the country, that 14 million uh, individuals in Afghanistan are on the brink of starvation, that 31 or 34 provinces are at risk of losing their health services entirely, and that 1% of the country is vaccinated. 
do you, uh, this is a fairly accurate description of the, the challenge for both uh, food and for health care? It is. The humanitarian situation is dire. Thank you. And the U.S. just participated in an international conference in which $1.1 billion was pledged in humanitarian relief from a variety of, of nations, including an additional uh, commitment by the United States. But uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations that often are essential for providing aid, are very concerned about a legal pathway to do so. Because in 2002, the Taliban was listed as a specially designated global terrorist organization under the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, and it doesn't have a humanitarian exception. Uh, previously, where we face this situation in, in Yemen, the Treasury Department stepped in to create a, a legal pathway, and uh, a number of senators uh, have written uh, to uh, Secretary Yellen and with copies uh, to you and to Samantha Powers saying let's use that same pathway here in which the Office of Foreign Asset Controls issues a general license creating kind of legal insulation providing humanitarian assistance. Um, Will, are you engaged in a conversation about how to create a legal pathway to provide humanitarian assistance? Uh, yes, we are. We've, we've issued one initial license, as you know. Uh, the Treasury issued uh, uh, about 10 days ago. Uh, and we're looking at what other authorities uh, might be needed to make sure that humanitarian assistance can flow uh, as, best, uh, as best possible in Afghanistan. Great. Thank you. That's absolutely essential. And I think we, we have a significant responsibility. We have the the chaos of, of, of war in combination with the, the pandemic uh, and general disruption in the country and, and uh, its immoral responsibility to provide assistance. I'm going to ask to enter for the, to the record the letter from September 2nd that the senators and members of the House sent to the administration. Without objection. Thank you. Uh, so as provincial capitals started to, to fall and we had nine provincial capitals fall in six days. There was a lot of discussion about whether the government of Afghanistan would direct a reconsolidation of forces uh, to uh, essentially consolidate protection of the territory still held, which was a, a shrinking. Did, did the government of Afghanistan take key strategic military decisions to consolidate its, its forces? It did not, and this was a source of tremendous frustration across the uh, administration from the uh, president uh, on down as the summer uh, went on, and uh, we saw the, uh, the Taliban uh, moving across the country. Uh, we repeatedly pressed the, uh, the Afghan government to do just what you described, which is to consolidate its forces and to defend what was uh, essential to defend uh, and what could be defended, not to extend itself across the entire country, which it didn't uh, have the, uh, the full capacity to do. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that, uh, that consolidation uh, and the, uh, the, the plan that we urged on them uh, for how to effectively defend uh, the, uh, the major cities uh, never took shape. What was the response of the, of the, of the government or from Ash President Ashraf Ghani about uh, why they chose not to consolidate their forces to protect the areas they controlled? Well, in, in, uh, at different moments, there were different responses. At some point, I think initially, uh, the response was, oh, we can't, uh, we can't be seen to be gi giving up on any part of the, uh, the country. <laughs> Never mind that, you know, over the last uh, five or six years, uh, the amount, of the, 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 part, the, the part of the country by population controlled by the government of Afghanistan, if you go back to 2014, 2015, uh, went from about 60% uh, to, at the, at the end of last year, 
uh, about uh, about 48%. So this was in, this was happening to, to some extent outside the cities, of course, um, relentlessly, slowly but relentlessly. Uh, but then, uh, as we pressed and pressed and pressed uh, on them, the response was, yes, uh, we'll do it, but they didn't. Well, we have seen over a number of years, we had the um, uh, challenge of uh, elections that were considered uh, illegitimate by a portion of the country. We had Abdullah Abdullah and uh, Ashraf Ghani kind of facing off against each other and creating paralysis, great difficulty appointing key ministers to key positions. As we analyze and try to understand the, the rapid collapse, did the, 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 was there essentially a failure to create an effective decision-making capability within the Afghanistan government? I think there are a number of factors, and this is something that uh, I, I hope we all look at going back uh, really over the last, over the last 20 years uh, at various key points. Uh, certainly there was a lack of unity uh, in, in the government because it, it was comprised of different, uh, different groups, different factions, uh, and despite, again, uh, very significant efforts to get them to act in a unified way, they couldn't or wouldn't. Uh, second, uh, I think uh, in terms of their uh, effectiveness, there were obviously serious concerns uh, that manifested themselves. Uh, and third, one of the endemic problems that uh, we've had over the last 20 years that we've not been able to effectively address uh, is pervasive corruption. And that has so many consequences. One of the consequences, uh, though, is that uh, if you're being asked to, uh, to fight and put your life on the line uh, for a government or for an institution uh, that's corrupt, that's a pretty hard uh, decision to make. And so I think, um, as we saw with many uh, Afghan forces uh, and soldiers fighting very, very bravely and giving their lives, but institutionally, the military collapsed in totally unanticipated ways in the course of 11 days. I think as we go back and look, one of the things we have to look at is the uh, impact that this pervasive corruption had in terms of uh, giving uh, the, the institution the will uh, to, uh, to fight for the country. Absolutely. In those uh, uh, final days, as the provincial capitals were falling, uh, President Ghani refused to acknowledge uh, that there were falling capitals. It was almost like a, a, a world in which he was uh, disengaged. And then the finance minister resigned and said he was leaving the country for family reasons, but it was taken as a symbol of, of the government on the verge of collapse. And then shortly thereafter, President Ghani uh, fled himself. I think it was August 15th, Sunday, August 15th. And uh, did we have forewarning of this uh, beginning of the cabinet to essentially uh, flee the country? And how did we respond uh, to that? Uh, we did not. On Saturday, as it happens, um, I spoke to President Ghani. Uh, we were working on a, uh, on a plan to have uh, a transfer of power to a uh, Taliban-led but but more broadly representative government to include um, many of the different actors in Afghanistan working on that in Doha. Uh, I was uh, calling President Ghani to make sure that he would support that. Uh, that was critical. He told me he would, but he said if the Taliban wouldn't go ahead with it, he would, and I'm paraphrasing here, fight to the death. That was Saturday. He left Afghanistan the next day on Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. The 64 million, though, is the tip of the iceberg. There's still about $10 billion out there that was designated for the Afghan government. Can you pledge today, without equivocation, that the Biden administration will not release any of this money to the Taliban? 
uh, absent the Taliban, making good on the uh, commitments and expectations of the uh, international community that I've outlined uh, previously? That's correct. Maybe we could deduct a fee for the weapons they took. So, uh, Senator, uh, on, the, uh, on the weapons, again, I'll defer to my, my colleagues at the Pentagon who are more expert in this. Uh, you're right that about uh, $80 billion worth of weaponry has been provided over the course of the last 15 or 16 years. Uh, much of that, uh, the, the significant weaponry, planes, helicopters, is actually inoperable, will soon become inoperable because it can't be maintained. In terms of the strategic threat that that weapon reposes, uh, it doesn't to us or to Afghanistan's neighbors. But you, but you can't say you're not going to give them the money. If they behave, you're going to give them the money. Why don't we subtract the $80 billion from the $10 billion you're going to give them? Then they're minus 70 still. I mean, really, the fact that you're entertaining good behavior that they'll get more money, I think, is a big mistake and a naive notion that we're going to somehow change this Stone Age philosophy by giving them more of our money. We've sunk trillions of dollars over this. our chance to have a peace dividend. Let's quit sending good money after bad. The guy the Biden administration droned, was he an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, the administration is, of course, reviewing that, uh, that strike, uh, and I'm sure that a you know, full assessment will be, will be forthcoming. So you don't know if it was an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, I can't speak to that, and I can't speak to that in this setting in any event. So you don't know or won't tell us? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, because we're, we're reviewing it. Well, see, you'd think you'd kind of know before you off somebody with a Predator drone, whether he's an aid worker or he's an ISIS-K. See, the thing is, is this isn't just you. It's been going on for administration after administration. The Obama administration droned hundreds and hundreds of people. And the thing is, is there is blowback to that. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I see these pictures of these beautiful children that were killed in the after 20 years, trillions of dollars spent and training of hundreds of thousands of Afghan security forces, the Afghan government we installed was no more capable of being the referee in a civil war than before we invaded. That's not the fault of our service members or diplomats. It's the fault of policymakers who set unrealistic goals. And so the basic question I have for you, uh, Mr. Secretary, is what are the lessons of the last 20 years of war? Uh, well, Senator, I think you actually summed it up uh, extremely well. Uh, and I would say uh, two things, uh, just to put a fine point on it. Uh, we went to Afghanistan for one reason, and that was to deal with the people who attacked us on 9-11, uh, to bring them to, to justice, and to the best of our ability, make sure that that would not happen again from Afghanistan. And we largely succeeded in that effort uh, a long time ago, with uh, bin Laden being killed in, in 2011, and al-Qaeda in terms of its capacity to um, conduct uh, attacks on the homeland from Afghanistan uh, vastly uh, degraded uh, to the point where the, it is currently assessed that it does not have that, uh, that capacity. Somewhere along the way, with the best of intentions, uh, we also sought to remake the country and, in effect, to use military force to remake another society. And I think to your point and the point that um, Senator Murphy and others have made, uh, whatever uh, our intentions, uh, that is probably something that is beyond uh, our capacity. And the net of that is that we were there for 20 years. We lost 2,461 Americans. 20,000 were killed, uh, were injured, excuse me. Uh, about $2 trillion were spent 
um, in direct and indirect costs. That's the equivalent of about $300 million every single day for 20 years uh, on average. And to those who say, well, yes, but you'd, you'd, you'd arrived in a place where the expenditures in terms of people and resources uh, were sustainable, well, that's simply not the reality that we faced. Uh, because, as we've discussed, given the deadline established for the removal of U.S. forces by the previous administration, the choice we had was either to go through with that and withdraw our forces or to re-up the war, to escalate, to send in more forces, more loss of life, more loss of resources uh, indefinitely. And to what end? To what result? Um, in terms of having something sustainable in a government uh, or in security forces uh, that could uh, protect the country and uphold uh, basic rights. Uh, so I think those lessons are, uh, are important, they're profound, and I hope all of us together uh, will, will reflect on those and other lessons that we've learned, both in what we've done tactically, including uh, in this administration, as well as what we've done strategically across many administrations over, um, over 20 years. Thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Uh, I, I am worried about reports that we're seeing about acts of violence against journalists, women and girls, and the Taliban uh, targeting mi minority groups like the Hazara people, um, groups who have a brutal uh, history of committing violence against, uh, against them uh, are probably going to get worse. So what are we doing to ensure physical access for the NGOs that service these um, uh, uh, constituencies? Thank you, Senator. Uh, these reports, which I've also seen, whether uh, in, in uh, media reporting and in, in videos and, and, and other reports, are deeply deeply uh, disturbing. And I think uh, whether it's us or whether it is many other countries around the world that we've been working uh, to, uh, to organize uh, and to focus, this, of course, uh, violates the basic um, expectations that we have uh, of a Taliban-led uh, uh, led government um, in terms of its need to uh, not abuse these rights but to, um, uh, to uphold them. So we are working to make sure that we are all both speaking with, with one voice and acting uh, together uh, when it comes to using the influence and leverage we have with the Taliban uh, to uh, insist that it meet these expectations. Second, um, when it comes to humanitarian assistance and other kinds of support, uh, besides providing that support to NGOs, to the United Nations uh, and its agencies, uh, we are doing uh, whatever we can to help ensure that those agencies and those NGOs are able uh, to operate, uh, pressing directly and, and indirectly on the, uh, the Taliban-led uh, government to uh, ensure their ability to do that and, uh, and their protection. Uh, but this is um, very much a, a moving picture and something we're very focused on uh, right now and in the, in the days and weeks ahead. Well, one final question. I understand, um, I understand this is not the main thing. I understand there are people who remain in mortal danger, but from your standpoint, um, uh, the, the Department of State, um, you've got to be a little worried about morale uh, for those people who have dedicated the better part of uh, 20 years um, uh, to this effort. And so what can we do, not what can we say, but what can we do on behalf of the Foreign Service, especially at a time when we need to be building back our diplomatic core? Yeah, thank you for raising that, Senator, because it's, you're exactly right, and it's, it's very, very important to, to me, and it's very, very important institutionally. I, um, I've spent time uh, with um, 
all of our returning uh, diplomats from, uh, from Afghanistan, either personally or, or virtually, depending on, on where they were, uh, and spent a lot of time listening to them, uh, hearing them, uh, and trying to address the concerns that they have. And to your point, uh, we have so many people who've invested um, their, uh, their, their work, their careers, their lives uh, in Afghanistan, developed relationships, um, a deep love uh, for the country. Um, and this, uh, this is very uh, challenging, uh, painful uh, for, for many of them. And of course, those who participated in the evacuation itself, who were literally at the gates at the Kabul airport, side by side with these extraordinary uh, men and women in, in, in uniform uh, doing that work, including the 13 who lost their lives, who were killed in the, H, in the, uh, in the terrorist attack. Uh, I had officers who were literally serving next to them uh, up to a couple of hours before that attack, knew them. To say, how did we end up here? Um, in April, the president made a decision at, uh, to announce everyone would be out by August 31st. May 8th, there was a rehearsal of, of, of concept, which is a dress rehearsal for withdrawal. Uh, I, I know that the, the National Security Council was there, the Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of Homeland Security, they were all there. Um, my understanding is that you did not attend. Is that true? My deputy uh, responsible for uh, the, uh, the operation was there. I, I know where you were. I think you should have been here instead. I understand in late June, the State Department was getting nervous because the military drawdown was moving on schedule, but not the civilian drawdown. You were running behind. I understand State Department was talking to the Defense Department to slow down the pace of military withdrawal, calling actually for, quote, tapping the brakes on military withdrawal. Isn't that true? Senator, I'm uh, not going to get into any uh internal deliberations or discussions that, uh, that we had. Uh, we worked on this uh, together every step of the way. In July, you got more warnings, the State Department, things were getting bad. When did the State Department formally make the request to the Department of Defense for military-assisted evacuation, the non-combatant evacuation operation? Because that's a secretary or ambassador job. Uh, the, 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 the NEO was being planned, if necessary. Uh, throughout the spring and summer. We revised the, uh, the plans uh, on a number of occasions. And ultimately, when the uh, government and security forces unexpectedly collapsed in the 11 days, uh, the NEO went into effect. So middle of August. That's correct. And why did you wait so long? Because we had a government and security forces in place uh, that, by every uh, estimate, uh, would be able to protect the city, protect Kabul, uh, protect the other provincial capitals, uh, certainly through the year. So yesterday you testified that the Taliban has been designated a terrorist organization. I want to be very clear on this, because that's what you said yesterday. Quote, the Taliban has been designated a terrorist organization. Does this administration believe the Taliban is a terrorist organization? Uh, it's designated under one of the designations. Uh, and any engagement that we have will be purely for the purposes of advancing our interests. Under one of the designations. Yes, when does this administration plan to list the Taliban as U.S. designated foreign Especially designated organization. Uh, terrorist organization. That's correct. And you testified this morning about the SIV washout rate. I think it's about 40 percent that they don't Before qualify. the chief of mission approval. That's correct. So, so what percentage of the Afghan population that left Afghanistan as part of our U.S. evacuation uh, efforts what percentage of those were vetted before they actually got on the airplanes? 
before they got on the airplanes yeah. uh, to leave Kabul? Uh, certainly not. Most of them were not. That's exactly why we established transit points in countries through negotiations with those countries to make sure that before anyone came to the United States, uh, they would be uh, vetted by uh, the different law enforcement and security agencies. So we established agreements uh, with uh, well more than a dozen countries. So, so who were you letting on the planes? Anybody that showed up? Well, initially, uh, as you know, there were uh, people who managed to flood the airport. Uh, we had to do an uh, immediate assessment of those. We had to make sure we could clear people out of the airport so that the flights could come in, go out. But no one uh, came to the United States uh, without being checked somewhere else first to make sure that they don't pose a security threat. My time's expired. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I would just have to Thank say you. I spent time uh, overseas last week talking to our NATO allies at a security conference as well as uh, with uh, NATO uh, individuals. And I'll is, tell you, think was, our enemies uh, are emboldened and our uh, allies concerns about are humanitarian uh, interests, a humanitarian uh, crisis that is, that is really boiling over there. And uh, I want to just get you to reiterate uh, that uh, you, you issued one license, uh, but we, we really need more, correct? Yeah, I understand that, and that's exactly what we're looking at. We want to make sure that all the authorities exist to provide that humanitarian assistance, uh, including by uh, not just our own uh, NGOs, but, uh, but others as well. And it's a strategic uh, situation where we know we control significant resources the Afghan government has been relying on to run basic services. This is a strategic leverage that we have over the Taliban uh, to continue uh, to try to pressure them into honoring human rights, honoring the rights of women, uh, 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 countering uh, uh, some of the terrorist concerns that we have, and it's very important. However, given what we understand, without those resources, there are going to be continued uh, humanitarian suffering. As the New York Times reported, um, the World Food Program is estimating about 40 percent of Afghans' crops are going to be lost. There's going to be tremendous hunger as the price of wheat is expected to go up 25 percent. Uh, the World Food Program's own food stock is expected to run out uh, by September. Uh, and so this is tremendous suffering that will come. Uh, it's going to be exacerbated by climate change. Uh, we can literally see uh, issues of starvation hitting the general population. Uh, I, I guess if you can give me specifically, what assurances has the Biden administration been able to secure from the Taliban as it, remarks, as it is to humanitarian access? Um, and how is the State Department working with international partners? Because it's not just our responsibility uh, to coordinate and provide near-term and long-term assistance for those Afghans who've ended up uh, in locations without the proper support mechanism. Yeah. Uh, first, you're exactly right, I think, to, to draw a distinction between basic humanitarian assistance to, to respond to what is uh, a crisis uh, among so many Afghan people. Uh, by the UN's estimates, uh, well over 50 percent are in need of humanitarian assistance. We've had a, we've had a drought. We've had uh, horrific economic conditions. Uh, we've had uh, COVID, everything piling on uh, to one of the poorest countries on earth to begin with. So when it comes to food, when it comes to medicine, uh, when it comes to the basics, um, the, we, the international community, uh, irrespective of anything else, uh, ought to be able to provide that, provided that we can do it uh, knowing that the assistance is going to get to the people uh, who need it. Uh, and not diverted or used uh, in, any other, uh, in any other way. Uh, we have longstanding uh, mechanisms and arrangements in place, including with leading NGOs, including with the UN agencies, to do just that, as well as very clear monitoring mechanisms to make sure, even in an environment that we don't control, uh, that assistance gets to the people uh, who need it. And I've spent time 
with the head of the U.N. agency responsible for that uh, to make sure that that's what's happening. We're coordinating with dozens of countries on this. Uh, the U.N. is playing a lead role. We, they just had a donors conference to make sure that everyone else is, is feeding into this as well. I just want to end by saying thank you. Mr. Secretary, my staff has been working very closely with yours on the issue of Afghan special immigration uh, applications or SIVs, some of which have been initiated for over three years. As you are aware, I sent a letter to you last week that outlines my concerns, and I spoke to Deputy Secretary McEwen three weeks ago. Due to the preparation for the hearing, I received updates on three of the five SIV cases my staff has been working for months on. I sincerely appreciate the efforts of your staff to get me this information, which I provided last night to the South Dakota veterans uh, who requested my help. And for that, I want to thank you. I would, however, like you to be aware of my concern pertaining to a key reason that has hamstrung my efforts to assist SIV applicants. This is the department's position stated to my staff on multiple occasions uh, that it is precluded by law from providing updates or noting any potential defects in applications. Mr. Secretary, if true, this would prevent members of Congress from executing oversight and constituent service responsibilities, um, specifically when they're advocating in support of an applicant. It would also incidentally violate the department's own foreign affairs manual. Will you commit to me today that you will review the department's procedures and fix this unacceptable procedure? Uh, Senator, um, I'm happy to review that. Um, and let me say, uh, first, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the, uh, the work that you and your team and staff have done uh, to help folks uh, in need and to um, make sure that we had the information uh, that we needed uh, to try to be helpful and to get people out. I'm really grateful for that and grateful for the, uh, the work that we've been able to do together. Uh, we'll certainly review all of these procedures. There are um, uh, requirements either built into the law, privacy concerns, et cetera, that may have to be uh, addressed, but we should look at everything. Well, Mr. Secretary, I think this is important enough to where uh, we will follow up and hopefully within a, a time certain we'll be able to come up with what changes need to be made either statutorily or within the rules process to clarify this because this shouldn't be that hard to be able to stay in contact and to make uh, to make those those mm -hmm. communications back and forth between your department and members of the United States Senate. Uh, our adversaries, Mr. Uh, Secretary, are celebrating the departure of U.S. troops and they most certainly are celebrating the creation of a power vacuum. Uh, most certainly they are also prepared to take this opportunity and use it to their advantage. China has announced last week that it will send $31 million worth of aid to Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. There have also been reports that they are looking at Bagram Air Base for their own use. The Russian embassy in Afghanistan has remained open and the ambassador met with Taliban leadership after the takeover. Pakistan is considering the Taliban government as a partner to counter India and the Iranian president openly called this an American military defeat and is considering working with the Taliban. Did the administration consider all of these foreign policy implications before such an abrupt withdrawal? And if they did, does the department have a strategy to counter our adversaries' malign influence mm -hmm. in the region? Mm -hmm. Uh, 
We certainly did. We factored everything into uh, the decisions we made, including the uh, impact that uh, it might have on the neighboring countries, uh, regional countries, uh, and others with various interests in Afghanistan. Uh, a number of the countries that you cited have a whole series of different interests in Afghanistan to include uh, making sure that it, it is not a place for terrorism directed uh, against them, uh, to ensure that it is not a source of drugs flowing out into their countries, to make sure that it is not a source of uh, potential refugees flowing out into their countries as well. Um, so all of those things are in play, and countries are uh, looking to uh, uh, take steps that they need to t uh, take to uh, protect some of their, their basic interests. At the same time, we've established uh, across more than 100 countries and in the UN uh, through a Security Council resolution, basic expectations of the uh, Taliban-led uh, led government. And if those expectations are, are not met and other countries are aiding and abetting uh, so that uh, the Taliban is able to not uh, fulfill those, uh, those expectations, uh, there'll be consequences for that too. Uh, and, well, Mr. Uh, Secretary, if I could, I, what I'm really curious about is do you have a strategy that you've established? Did you have enough time before this withdrawal to actually establish a strategy knowing that there would be a void in Afghanistan? The work that we've done uh, to bring together across uh, dozens of countries, uh, very active uh, contact groups, uh, looking uh, as we work together uh, across these countries with NATO, the, U, uh, the EU, as well as, uh, as the UN. Uh, we have a collective uh, strategy uh, on the way forward, uh, and we're working that as we do, speak. Does our country, do we have, do we have a strategy? It, it, I mean, if, if this has been laid out and based upon the need to move out as quickly as we did, did you have time to actually establish a strategy to take care of what will be this power void. And I understand that you've been there now for almost three hours. Hmm. But simply to say that you're working on it with our, with our other countries seems to me, looks to me like we need our own strategy here. And it doesn't sound like you're in a position to share with us that that strategy actually exists today. Um, I'm happy, Senator, to follow up with you and to, uh, uh, to share the, both our, th our thinking and more of our, uh, our work on that. Uh, but we have organized, uh, several dozen countries that are collectively working, Mr. Uh, working on and implementing Mr. a strategy Secretary, both to the, the getting, my oh, time sorry, is go ahead, Senator. Short. Go ahead. Go what ahead. I would hope is, is that if you would, whether it be in a classified setting or publicly, if you could share with us in the next week to 10 days mm -hmm. what that strategy is. Uh, and if it needs to be in a classified setting, I'd ask the chairman to, to provide us with that opportunity. But most certainly, I think it's important that we have a strategy to combat what will be a void uh, in Afghanistan, which is a void now, and most certainly is something that we should be in a better position, I believe, than what it sounds like you're able to articulate today. And Mr. Chairman, I would suspect that my time is up at this, at this point. Thank you. Uh, Senator Markey. I sent a letter with four of my colleagues today uh, asking for the administration uh, to ensure that the money previously allocated are requested for Afghan war efforts be repurposed to assist Afghans in need. Uh, could you uh, give your view as to what should happen with that funding uh, now that uh, the defunct Afghan Defense and National Security Forces 
uh, are not there to receive this funding in terms of ensuring that we avert, uh, avert a further humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan. Yeah, th thank you, Senator. And I uh, got your letter. Uh, uh, we're looking at all of that. We want to make sure in the first instance um, that we are uh, making good on our own contributions to the humanitarian assistance that the Afghan people need. Uh, we did, we uh, did that again yesterday uh, at the pledging conference uh, organized by the uh, by the United Nations. We're going to continue to look at, at the needs going forward uh, and to look at what uh, what we can do effectively to make sure that assistance is getting to the people who need it, uh, not diverted, of course, to uh, the Taliban-led government, uh, and making sure that uh, agencies, uh, whether the UN or NGOs, can operate. Uh, safely and effectively in Afghanistan. Yeah, thank you. And as the last planes left, many international relief organizations stayed behind. We owe it to them not to create red tape and free them from the risk of sanctions. Are you working with the Treasury Department to issue a general license so that these groups' life-saving uh, work can continue? We are working on the necessary licensing authorities. As you know, we issued one license, uh, the Treasury did, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. We're looking to see what uh, additional authorities may be uh, needed to make sure that humanitarian assistance can, can get in there freely. Thank you. I think that's very important, and I think telescoping the time frame to get that completed mm -hmm. is very important. And just about every major refugee um, assistance group uh, has called for lifting the um, level to 200,000 people uh, as refugee uh, admissions into our country. Um, what is the administration's view on that 200,000-person goal in order to ensure that we deal with the magnitude of this humanitarian crisis? Uh, Senator, as you know, uh, we've already significantly lifted the uh, refugee cap from its historic lows that uh, were in place when we, uh, when we took office. Uh, and, of course, we're, we're assessing whether there are going to be additional needs. Having said that, uh, the, the work we're doing now to bring Afghans in need uh, who are uh, vetted and, uh, and checked uh, into this country, including um, support we need from Congress on that, uh, will not, for the most part, uh, tap into the, uh, to the refugee cap. There are other um, means and mechanisms by which we're looking to uh, bring people in to ensure, uh, with your support, that they're given the assistance that they would get uh, were they coming in as, as, as refugees, but not uh, actually cutting into the, uh, to the existing cap or any future cap? I, I, thank you, and thanks for all your great work. I, I, I just would hope that 200,000 is the goal, the resettlement agencies. Are Secretary Blinken, my office and other congressional offices have heard rumors regarding potential cabinet resignations over the situation in Afghanistan. So I want to ask you, have you submitted your resignation regarding this issue? I have not. The lack of accountability here, the lack of accountability in this administration is shocking to me. I'd like to turn to another question regarding the intelligence that we've relied upon. In an internal report given to the State Department by Embassy Kabul on August the 16th, there was warning of a breach of the Kabul airport. It said, I quote, a breach cannot be fully prevented at current force levels. Mr. Secretary, did you see that report? I'm sorry, can you tell me the date again, Senator? August the 16th, a report given to Embassy Kabul, an internal report from Embassy Kabul to the State Department, yeah. saying that a breach at the airport cannot be fully prevented at current force levels. 
Um, I can't tell you whether I saw that specific report, but that's exactly why the President had on standby uh, 6,000 forces to be able to deploy immediately into Afghanistan, into the airport, in case the airport uh, was in jeopardy, and that's exactly what we did. Well, this, um, the, the force levels being insufficient, uh, I think, was a significant reason for concern, something that, uh, in a plan of action, uh, I think should have been accounted for certainly earlier. Um, and going to the NEO plan, I'd like to cover that with you for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. The non-combatant evacuation operational plan for Afghanistan would be a plan on how we evacuate American civilians from a foreign country should a dangerous situation arise. That's correct. Uh, prior to turning over the Bagram Air Base in July, on July 2nd, did the NEO plan to evacuate Americans have the Bagram Air Base as a critical element of its strategy? The uh, critical element uh, for any evacuation was actually the airport in Kabul, H known as Hkaya, because, as you know, Senator, uh, Bagram is about uh, 40 miles uh, from Kabul, to the extent that the population that you're seeking to evacuate was mostly in Kabul. Uh, the airport by far most convenient uh, to them would be the, the airport in Kabul, Hkaya. A civilian airport in a neighborhood that's much more difficult to protect than an airway, air airport the size of Bagram with two runways and the ability to land and lift off uh, significant, significant airlift capacity, uh, I'm frankly quite shocked that our NEO plan would have had no inclusion of the Bagram Air Base. But if I understand you correctly, it did not include Bagram. Uh, the plan focused on the airport in Kabul. Um, I wonder how the evacuation plan was updated, Mr. Secretary, as things began to change on the ground. What was the process that you deployed there? Uh, Senator, through the course of the spring and, and, and summer, we reviewed uh, all of these plans, different contingencies, including the, uh, uh, the NEO plan. Uh, of course, the element that no one anticipated, as we've uh, discussed uh, on numerous occasions, uh, was the rapid collapse of the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces in the space of about uh, 11 days. Uh, having said that, we had plans in place to do the two critical things that, that we did. We were able to uh, evacuate our embassy, all its personnel, destroy uh, sensitive materials, get people to the airport uh, in 48 hours, uh, and in many cases, much less than that. Second, as I mentioned, the President ordered that there be a standby force in place to make sure that uh, HKIA, the airport in Kabul, uh, was secured, uh, planes could come in, planes could take off, uh, and we had a secure uh, facility. Uh, and we did that in the course of about 72 hours. Back to the NEO discussion. In an August 14th briefing, the Pentagon spokesman John Kirby denied that there was a NEO operation in Afghanistan at that point. But two days later, on the 16th, he belatedly admitted there was a NEO operation going on. And so I'm curious, Mr. Secretary, what date did the administration actually decide to execute the NEO plan, and when did they begin to actively evacuate all Americans allies? I believe, Senator, it was triggered by the, uh, the collapse of the, of the government uh, and the security forces. Who would have made the decision to execute the NEO? Uh, ultimately, uh, the, uh, the, the President would, uh, would be asked for uh, his uh, decision and approval to, uh, to do that, uh, based on the recommendation of the different government agencies mm -hmm. involved. Is that what happened in this case? I believe that's right, yes, sir. Um, you know, oversight isn't a simple check-the-box exercise. It requires getting to the bottom of what's come to be the greatest U.S. foreign policy disaster, at least in my lifetime. And Mr. Chairman, we need more hearings on this Afghanistan withdrawal failure. I'd also like to say this. Leadership requires owning one's mistakes. 
and leadership requires introspection and a commitment to achieve what's right. What we've witnessed here has been a failure of leadership. What it is has been a trust-driven spin cycle. It's one that's deflected blame, and it's one that's shamed us as a nation. It's time to lead. Senator, if I could just say uh, briefly uh, uh, in response. Please, please, uh, please be brief. Yes. Um, I am responsible for the decisions I make. I'm responsible for the actions of my department. Uh, I'm responsible for learning any lessons that flowed from those decisions or those actions. And I'm also responsible to holding myself accountable uh, to you uh, and through you uh, to the American people, which is exactly what I'm doing here today, uh, what I've been doing these past uh, weeks in repeated conversations and briefings with uh, members of Congress, both the Senate and the House, and what I will continue uh, to do uh, going forward. Uh, and we can all uh, draw our own conclusions uh, from that. Uh, I respect yours. Mm -hmm. I, may dis I may disagree with them. But that's exactly the process uh, that I'm engaged in uh, and that we're engaged in. And we will continue to do that going forward. Well, my constituents expect that sort of account. Mr. Secretary, isn't it a fact that the Trump administration asked the Pakistani government to release three top Afghan uh, Taliban commanders as part of that process? Uh, that's correct. And one of them is um, the, the person who's now number two, Baradar, right? That's correct. He's the person everybody saw in those photos uh, in Kabul, right? That's correct. Right. And there was another senior commander released. And they began the discussions in Doha. That's right. They did not include the Afghan government, did they? That's correct. Right. And they, in fact, um, essentially ordered pressure the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters, right? That's correct. Many of those fighters involved in the attack on Kabul today, right? Yes. Okay. Now, let's see what the negotiation was. Here was the negotiation. I supported the beginning of it. The United States will leave by a date certain, May of this year, right? Correct. You can't attack American forces, but you can attack Afghan forces with impunity, right? Uh, that's correct. That's right. And so we pick a date. We say to the Taliban, you can attack Afghan forces. And then we say, okay, now let's negotiate the future of Afghanistan. Isn't that the way it was set up when you walked in? That's essentially right. correct, yes. There's a saying in Afghanistan that uh, foreigners have the watches, we have the time. And so the Trump administration, through those negotiations, set it up perfectly for the Taliban. Green light to attack the Afghan forces, no discussion going forward. And then isn't it true that uh, the former president criticized President Biden for, for not pulling out our forces earlier? I believe that's accurate. I think he said, you got to stick to our May timetable. So President Trump, stick to our May timetable. And by the way, I'm handing you a negotiation where I've already said we're getting out. And I've said, go ahead and attack the Afghan forces. And now we're going to talk about the future. So that's the hand you've been dealt. Let me talk to you a little bit about the future. Uh, and I'm glad you brought together the ministerial meeting with our NATO partners, with surrounding countries. This will never work if the surrounding countries don't participate and others in the region. You had both Pakistan and India at the table, right? That's right. Okay. Now, I, I'm very much uh, in the mode, and I know you are too, you watch what they do, not what they say, right? Exactly. The Taliban clearly have new PR people. They also recognize 
that their actions they have to take in order to get any kind of support whatsoever uh, from some of the Western countries, right? That's correct. Okay. So I've heard you testify today to some of those conditions, uh, free and safe passage for people who want to leave, right? Right. Okay. Uh, access by international human humanitarian organizations directly to the Afghan people, not through any Taliban government, That's right. right? Protection of girls, women, and minorities. That's right. This is going to be one, obviously, we have to keep a very close eye on. Fourth, you can't use the territory of Afghanistan as a base for future terrorist attacks, whether it's al-Qaeda or anybody else. That's right. And a more inclusive government, because right now we have a government comprised of Taliban, including two members of the Haqqani network, um, you know, one of who's wanted uh, for questioning and, and uh, for violent activities. Uh, so my question to you is, that was a really important first step, because we want everybody on the same page, meaning the, our, our close partners and surrounding countries, right? That's right. All right. What do you have that buy-in from all the partners around the table that we will act in unison? Uh, we do have that buy-in. We have that buy-in not only from the, uh, the meetings we have, we have that buy-in uh, in the statements that uh, many countries have signed on to. We have that in a UN Security Council resolution that we initiated. And uh, critically, we have, uh, moving forward, established an ongoing group uh, of countries and institutions that are going to work together to track this, to continue to make sure we're speaking with one voice and acting uh, in unison. Got it. Now, there are countries that may be outliers uh, in, this, uh, in this effort. Some of them have been referenced to include, uh, to include China, uh, to include Russia, to include Pakistan, and uh, that's something we're being very, very vigilant about as well. Tens of thousands of Afghans who assisted the U.S. military, the Biden administration abandoned them and left them behind. And fourth, leaving billions of dollars of American military equipment that the Taliban will now use to threaten our lives. Earlier in this hearing, you, you said about that equipment, quote, none of it poses a strategic threat to us or their neighbors. That does not pass the laugh test. When you're looking at the Taliban potentially having 64,000 machine guns, 33 Black Hawk helicopters, 16,000 night vision goggles, we will see American blood spilled because of these colossal mistakes. Now, abandoning Bagram wasn't your call. It was the Pentagon's and the White House's ultimately. But I want to ask you flat out, did the State Department give the Taliban a list or multiple list of Americans and or Afghans that we wanted out? Those reports and the idea that we would do anything to endanger our citizens or anyone else at a time when we were trying to save their lives is flat out wrong. Let, let me, so I just let like me, a yes or no, did you give them let the list? Me, let me be very clear, uh, Senator, if I may, please. Thank you. Um, in limited instances where we were seeking to get a bus or a group of people through a checkpoint, we gave a manifest to the people at the checkpoint to demonstrate that those people were expected Roughly to Roughly how many names were on the list you gave? It doesn't matter because they all... Dozens, they, hundreds, thousands. Give us some order of magnitude. This happened in a, in a handful of situations where to dozens? get through... Dozens? So is it your I, testimony it wasn't hundreds? I want to understand, did you give them thousands of names? No, I, we did not. 
Okay, hundreds? I'm not going to put a number on it, but it was, it, again. Why not? This is a hearing to discover how many names and how many of those individuals you gave the Taliban the name to have been targeted for torture or murder. Senator, by definition, these were uh, in limited instances with a bus or a group of people to get them through a checkpoint. They got through the checkpoint. So not only did you fail to evacuate Americans and green card holders who were there, but you also brought in tens of thousands of Afghans who had wholly inadequate vetting, bringing many of them to the United States. And one of the things that has done is that has brought in a humanitarian crisis to America. Child marriage and domestic abuse, tragically, are widespread in Afghanistan. According to the World Health Organization, more than half of the women in Afghanistan are married as child brides, and 90% of women are subject to domestic abuse, 90%. On August 27th, according to public reports, you distributed internal documentation highlighting numerous instances and in intake centers of sexual abuse in which much older grown Afghan males appeared with children, young children, claimed they were their brides, claimed they were their wives, and the document said the State Department urgently requested guidance. That was your word, urgently. Subsequently, the Department of Homeland Security said that it showed the desperation of families, that they were willing to give little girls to grown men to be subject to sexual abuse and child wives. My question is as follows. Did you receive that urgent guidance? How many children have been subject to sexual abuse? What have you done to rescue young children from illegal and abusive relationships after being brought to America by the State Department? Across the entire government, everyone involved in the evacuation effort, whether it's at a transit point uh, in one of the countries that we negotiated with, whether it's here in the United States at uh, Dulles or Philadelphia or the military bases, we have all of our officers uh, at extreme vigilance to look for uh, and to uh, deal with any uh, cases or concerns uh, that arise. Did you arise receive the urgent guidance, and how many child brides I, have you seen? I, I don't know the specific guidance you're referring to. I'm happy to look uh, to look at it. So uh, is there not urgency to discover if children are being abused? Absolutely. Time, time of the senator sure has expired. We could, we could detect and deal with uh, have any cases, and there have been, a, uh, to my have knowledge, uh, a limited number of cases where we have separated people because we were concerned uh, that they were uh, there. The cases I'm aware of, a handful. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.